0: Hey, I'm Michael, and this is Michael in the Middle. It's an intergenerational relational podcast for people who are interested in better human interaction. I'm glad you're here. (laughs) Hey, uh, welcome, friends, to uh, uh, an evening uh, here. I'm in Tennessee. That's my good friend, Dr. Harold Ivan Smith. He's out in California. Where in California are you?
1: I am in Palm Springs. I live by the airport. Uh, and so if you hear a plane go over, uh don't
0: don't let it bother you. <laughs> well our our uh, our house is actually often in the flight flight plan for okay, uh, you understand. Yeah. takeoffs and landings. Yeah, we're out we're out east of Nashville just a little bit out past uh Hermitage Church of the Nazarene, which you may remember out off the yeah. bill road toward Old Hickory. Yeah,
1: um, yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. And, uh, and I had,
1: to, I talked to a friend in Nashville yesterday, and they told me I would not recognize like East Nashville around First Church. Yeah, because I haven't been around that. Uh, oh, even when I've been back at Trevecca, I haven't been over there.
0: Yeah, and they said I just wouldn't East, know it. East Nashville is just uh, it's it it still has a lot of the old flavor, a lot of the old homes. Uh-huh. But then they've also been building all kinds of condos and, you know, it's, it's the Joni Mitchell paid paradise and put up a parking lot, you know, thing they, they literally uh-huh. did put up a parking garage across from the old National first Nazarene right there on, uh, on fifth street. And oh, so, really? so that view, as you're looking back towards downtown is, uh, is, uh, it, it's now just a big concrete parking deck, you know, but, uh, it progress, uh right.
1: We had Aunt Sarah Who lived just down the street There from that corner A very eccentric Great great aunt 90 years old <laughs> And uh, uh, she, uh, she used money As wallpaper Because she might need it <laughs> So she'd just take a 20 Off the wall or a 10 off the wall And um, Oh my goodness It was just an experience and so that's what always roots me—not first church, admittedly, but uh, Aunt Sarah, just there, in that next block of Russell. Uh, oh, visiting with her was a trip. <laughs> and when oh. she came to visit us, that was a trip. Oh,
0: that's great. I <laughs> yeah. I am so glad that you were able to carve out some time for me here and and uh, to to share in this. Um, Podcast. I know you're a veteran of these kinds of opportunities. You know, you've been interviewed probably hundreds, if not thousands, of times by people, but uh, um, this is a real treat for me because um, I, the fact that both of us went to Trebek Nazarene University at different time periods. I kind of followed in your legendary footsteps there. I, I heard Harold <laughs> Ivan stories, you know, and uh, I work with a good buddy of yours, uh, Don, Don Hastings. And uh, and, and so um, I think I think uh, he's probably one of those guys that um, what what is it? People can remember things differently. Is that is. is
1: uh, yes. Uh, sometimes the way one person remembers the story and actually would swear to it in court may not be the way or there are little nuances there are little details that get left out and you go oh you can't understand the story without the detail <laughs> and uh oh my that the story uh you can ask don about the night uh, tennessee hall caught fire and just ask i probably didn't tell you about that story but um Oh my gosh, was that a night to experience?
0: (laughs) It was, oh yeah, it was, it was good. And, you know, things took charge. I, I, uh, I have some of those kinds of memories as well. Um, you know, and and boys will be boys, you know, especially when they're in college and, and doing a lot of crazy things. But those are bonding moments too, are they not? They are indeed, because, um,
1: You know, I I thought a lot if I had gone to a large state school, for example, a totally different set of understandings and this network. I I just turned 75 Sunday a week ago and uh, Dennis Moore sent me an email saying, I think we've been friends for 51 years. And I went, no, we don't need to say that. We, We don't need to talk about how. But then you go, wow, that is incredible. And I can go through and start naming on my fingers uh, those friends from Trevecca that I have been indeed friends for life and friends at different points and different junctures. And it's almost like an ebb and a flow in some cases. But we found we can jump in where we left off. And those are amazing, amazing experiences to look back on. Um, what do you very mean? amazing and the providence of God in directing those paths? Uh, you know, there's a lot being said now about forgiveness of student loans. And I remember this dates how long ago it was that I borrowed $600 one summer uh, on some loan. I thought, Lord, how will I pay $600 back? Uh, And now that's a drop in the bucket to what some students owe. But uh, it was a real challenge. But I needed it that summer to finish my degree. So uh, the check came through at just the right moment. And I also say, uh, I have come to appreciate those individuals who went before us, but also those who gave before us sacrificially. Uh, I can remember Uh, There was a guy named uh, 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 Clifford Keys who drove a Rambler and uh, in retirement lived in Trevecca Towers. Pop Keys, right? Yeah, Pop Keys. That's exactly right. And he would show up about once a year to the old Louisville First Church, and he would tell why Trevecca needed money. And uh, my dad would want to know, well, what about accreditation? Yes, we're going to get to that. But right now we're talking about money. And so it was implanted, as a kid, as a kid, six or seven years old, you're going to trifecta. Um, You know, Bob Benson used to say "College was picking a college was not difficult for him. He just had to go where his dad was sending the tuition money. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, I, there's a truth to that. That's but great. It was, and I remember my parents brought me to Nashville on a vacation. And I can remember as clear as about where this science building is now. My mom and I standing on that hilltop, because it wasn't a science building, and mother saying, you think you want to come here? Yeah, I think I do. And of course, never in my mind could have imagined Treveka of today. Could never have comprehended that. Uh, But the amazing people who have made all that happen, Sometimes very well known for making it happen and others who uh, were behind the scenes in making it happen. And I've sometimes thought about those professors who went the second and third miles. Yeah. And I would love to know now what their annual salaries were. <laughs> uh, I, I probably have to get up off the floor if I knew. Yeah. But that was where they taught me about mission. Yes, you could be teaching other places. Yes, you could but I'm here in this juncture of your life. And um, that was a life lesson I learned. And to be um, in someone else, in the juncture of someone else's life. And Mm. of course I I do that regularly now in grief because I work with strangers that I've never met, Mm. but suddenly I am in their life in, for some of them like this past Sunday, was their unimaginable moment. Uh, A wonderful man, they were flying to Italy on vacation, and he had a massive heart attack and died on the plane over the Atlantic. And so I started the service by saying, this is the last place any of us dreamed we would be this Sunday morning, yet here we are. And that's something I've had to get used to, uh, Sunday morning funerals in California. Uh, I didn't experience that in Kansas city or in the South, but it's a reality here because people can travel and get together on those days. So
0: that's very it, interesting. It,
1: and, and you know, it, you're coming alongside them and they believe that I know how to structure a service and for that 45 minutes to an hour to get them to a different place. They trust me. Yeah. And I sent a note to a woman today saying, You know, I'm so deeply grateful you trusted me with your husband's funeral. I was a total stranger to you. Uh, And then she had written a wonderful note about how the service was just everything that she wanted it to be. Mm -hmm. Um, And that I involved her grandchildren. That's what really surprised her. That was I didn't tell her I was going to do that. But I got the grandchildren up around me on the front of it by the casket. And I read a children's book to them and then talked about the loss.
0: So I, I looked up the word today. Uh, um, I, I think your friend Don was the one who mentioned it to me. But by trade, is, is, it, is it thanatology? Is that, yes. Is, is that- thanatology
1: is the Greek word for, uh, Thanos is the Greek word for death. So the ology comes along as the study of grief. And uh, basically, we have three streams in this field. There are those who are like in hospice, uh, death doulas, that sort of thing, before death happens. And then there are individuals, such as me, who are once death has happened, and there are others, which also includes me, who do bereavement care. So it's three phases, and some of us have very different skills. I'm not sure how good I would be at doing hospice care, but I am good in, in, I think, in this section of doing funerals, memorial services, committals. And I have to tell you that I was not prepared early in the pandemic here in Southern California when, um, when COVID hit our Coachella Valley so desperately. Uh, the first one I did, I was the only person besides one mourner from the family ah. allowed in the cemetery. It was Good Friday morning. Now, it doesn't rain in the desert here. Right. It started raining. Wow. And there was no tent. There was no chair for this only griever to sit in. And uh, nobody had an umbrella over my head. And I got drenched and i was just going god you got to help me i didn't volunteer for this but this is where i am i've got to try to reach this one mourner um and it you know you go ha- and then you know i did services under tents that we pitched out on the lawn of the funeral home and limited to 10 people and for some of those families which 10 do we choose they had more than 10 family members And um, you know, in part of the pandemic was the struggle with suicides and drug overdoses. And those were horrendous. Matter of fact, this past Sunday, uh, the chapel was full. And I looked out and I said, I I cannot tell you how helpful it is to me to look out and see all of you here. Because I have done services in this chapel with eight people, eight people. And Michael, those were difficult to do because some of them were just so in shock. Yeah. Uh, and you wonder is anything I'm saying getting through to them? And um, and sometimes it did, and sometimes it didn't. I had a, have a man arrested, a father of the deceased, and uh, I, I had heard stories about that happening, and then it happened. Right. And. Um, I I felt like I never did get control of the service, the funeral service, again. It it was like off somewhere. Uh, But there have been people who have just been, you know, this was perfect. And I remember one elderly man said to me, you know, this has been like a counseling session. Mm -hmm. I didn't know you were going to ask these questions, but answering them has really help me go back over our years of marriage, like 45 years. And he said, I think this has been helpful to me. And so I smiled and said, well, thank you very, very much. Um, So even there, it is about storytelling. Uh, There's a program here called Learning in Retirement. And these are doctors and lawyers and engineers, architects who didn't have time to get interested in history Really, some of them in science, even. And so now in retirement, they take classes. And uh, what I like is, you know, that student wants to be there. That's, they're not nah, there nah, because nah. I got to have this to get a. You know, They're there because they want to learn. Let me, it's been the most fascinating experience because yeah. I teach generally three classes. Uh, one is Harry Truman, because I'm writing a book about Harry right now. The other one is death and grief in the White House. People, they know Abraham Lincoln. They know John Kennedy, okay. But to look at all these incredible losses and how presidents in the public eye had to deal with their grief. And, um, you know, we did it on a lark. We didn't know if anybody would sign up for it. Death in the White House. Boy, doesn't that sound like a great class (laughs) Friday at noon. But they, they signed up for it. And so there's uh, a real interest in that. And one of my things is, is there something in the history of a president or first lady that might help you in your grief? Uh, let me tell you a quick one. Uh, and uh, you've got to stop me, Michael, and give me a time stop yeah, sign. Or no, something
0: I, that's fine. I'm enjoying it.
1: But people think about the great Eleanor Roosevelt. And what many of them do not know is the background that when she went flu, down to warm springs georgia to bring Roosevelt's uh, roosevelt and casket back to washington for the funeral services uh once she got in the cottage about midnight she merely asked who was here when franklin died well you know, that's an interesting question of course they said well, it was two cousins were here yeah uh, his uh, handyman or that helped him dress and all that, Arthur Perryman was here. Yes, Daisy Boner was here because she was fixing lunch, yeah. And Eleanor just happened to say, happened to say, was anyone else here? And suddenly in that room, they're looking at each other and one person said, you're gonna find out she was here. And Eleanor said, who was she? And they said, Lucy Mercer Rutherford was here which is the woman Franklin had had an affair with during World War I. Mm. And Eleanor had stayed with him because his political future would have been gone. Yeah, And she walked back into that bedroom, shut the door and was in there for five minutes. And I would dearly love to know what she said, but she had to act as if she did not know that. And she had to go through all the rituals And even that with the cameras on her at the grave, and yet she was just going, how could he have cheated on me late in life? And and now, of course, through information uh, records acts, we know exactly what time she was in the White House and what rooms Lucy was in in the White House. And Eleanor had to pack up the White House um, and they'd lived there 12 years. And she said something fascinating in response to her granddaughter. Her granddaughter, also named Eleanor, said to her, uh, Eleanor said, no one will even know who I was in 10 years. And the granddaughter spoke up, oh, grandma, come on, come on, come on. And she said, no, no one will even know who I was. Now, I think she believed that. But the greatest years of her life came in the 17 years of widowhood. Right, And as she was preparing to leave the White House, she wrote these words. You must do the thing you think you cannot do. You must <laughs> do the thing or things. And I have asked many widows, tell me what it is you think I can't live without my husband. I can't live without my child or whatever. And in, in employment, uh, I have lost my company or my company is turned. Term- I, I can't. You must do the thing which may be starting over in the middle. And you had no idea this was going to be happening to you at this moment in your life. Some people thought they were coasting to retirement. Yeah. And they have discovered something, but you must do the thing you think you cannot do.
0: I, I just I just love that. And I, you know, I know. I know the truth is that you could talk about any number of presidents you've written about them. And, and, uh, those are such fascinating stories. I, I I want to ask you, um, kind of a, um, and I think maybe you can break this down fairly, fairly quickly and succinctly because I, I, I've been hearing a little bit of a thread through all of this, but I want to get your take on it in the work that you do in the work that you have observed people as they've come to the end of life or their loved one has come to the end of life, what what are some of those common threads that you remember potentially from how you built friendships with people like Don back in college and then how you've done your work across the years? Is there a common thread to relationship that, that strikes at the heart of this type of thing that you've ended up doing across the course of your life. I mean, do you have to, do you have to know where the strength of relationship lies in order to, to really know how to attack it, even if it was not a great relationship?
1: Yes. Um, You know, when I was at Trevecca, I don't believe the thought ever crossed my mind that I would be a divorced person. And that the person that I met at Trevecca would say, you know, I never loved you. And um, those relations, because we all interacted and dating and, you know, all of that. And then suddenly to be alone in the mountains of North Carolina. And I remember it was a Trevecca friend who said, get in your car and drive down here and just come down here for three or four days and just get away from all of it and let things kind of sort out. And during that period, uh, because I was traveling then as an associate dean of admissions and traveling across the South for a college, and I had a chance to see those uh, mini Trevecca alums who in those moments were just utterly supportive. And I think of my friends Don and Nancy Dunlap who um, offered their bedroom in their parsonage in Raleigh. Uh, when I was traveling East to recruit students out in the outer banks and that sort of thing, yeah, I would spend a weekend with them. And they listened by the hour, by the hour. not advice. There was no, not really any advice. And uh, for some listeners, uh, you need to understand those days, divorce was very stigmatized, especially if you were in a ministry or wanting to go into a ministry mm. and they put, pointed me to a future. Uh, part of it was, um, uh, how could God let this happen? Because I, you know, I had this idea, well, you pray about it. And God is obviously in favor of marriage. He's not in favor of divorce. So God's going to make this all work out. And I remember my therapist saying, what are you going to do if God doesn't show up by Friday morning? And I remember saying, not to worry, Dr. Eichelberg, God comes through in the last minute. I am confident God will come through. And when that divorce degree was placed on my desk in the university office, I was dumbfounded because I felt like, boy, where is God when you need him, when the chips are down? And I needed to learn. Understand that God is there and God's people are there. Very, very important to me to learn that. Uh, and in my work, we talk about something called the assumptive world. <clears throat> and it's a wonderful philosophy that all of us have these assumptions. I assumed you were gonna call it this time. I assumed the technology was gonna work. And we have assumptions. That's why we keep from wearing out our brains worrying about things. But some of those assumptions get turned upside down. And you know, for some people, it's not my child. No, my child would never get pregnant. No, no, no. No, my child would never get involved with drugs. No, no, no. And that assumptive word. So people have to grieve sometimes for the loss, but also for the loss of their assumptive world. I did a major project uh, two years ago and we're dusting it off. Uh, to take it toward publication now of of grief and loss in prosperity gospel churches, where you bind Satan, Uh, all these kind of things. And suddenly you got to deal with where it was God when that happened or that God allowed it to happen. And uh, I just lectured this year and in doing writing for Oxford University Press, on people who lose their religious faith as a result of trauma. And when I was asked to do that, Michael, I thought, hey, I got this down. You know, if you get a few journal articles, recent journal, all that kind of stuff. And then I began to realize this thing about some of these people were were grieving the loss of God as much as the loss of an individual. Mm. Especially when you had a child die, or some of those circumstances, I had a man died just before their fiftieth wedding anniversary. Yeah, you know, they'd already engaged the country club for this huge celebratory evening, and that ended up where they had the funeral meal. And listening and giving them permission to be angry at God—that's a big part of what I do. God can take it, and God understands that you cannot fathom. One thing I have discovered, I wouldn't fully have dreamed that at the funeral home, people will talk to me. (laughs) They would never talk to a minister or their minister because they got to see him next Sunday or whatever. But they talk to me and they tell me things. And, you know, uh, we've been talking 10 or 15 minutes and suddenly they're willing to go into their story. And sometimes those stories were very discordant. the wife, say, stayed in the marriage or there was unfaithfulness in the marriage. And uh, being able to receive that and listen to that and sometimes ask, where did you get the strength to do that? Well, is it possible you can find that level of strength to do what you've got to do now in grieving?
0: And, I, um, you, I, if go ahead. If, if, I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly, If I've listened well these last couple of minutes, as you've talked about that, you're saying that regardless of whether it's college friends who are going to do a bunch of silly stuff or people who walk through difficult moments with you, and especially as you get to the end of life and someone has lost the person that meant the most to them, one of the best things you can say, so to speak, is I'm listening. Tell me, tell me your story. Tell me, tell me what you're yeah. feeling. And I, yeah. I, I I'm, I've joked about the fact that I majored in communication as an undergrad because I like to talk. And I thought, well, that'll, that'll probably be the easiest. Uh, <laughs> I'm easiest halfway there. To get a get a degree. And and a, a, a another friend of yours from Louisville, uh, Jim Quiggins was my major. Oh professor. yeah. And I, I mean. He's a master communicator, but that is one of the things that I still remember from those communication courses that effective understand. I mean, effective communication requires understanding. You can't understand without listening. And uh, yes, yes. um,
1: And sometimes, you know, uh, what I've experienced with some grievers, you get this immediate response. Oh, I know just how you feel. Now, I remember when my mother died and suddenly we're not talking about you. And your mother, we're talking about me and my mother. <laughs> and it's that tempting to want to bond with them. And I have said, if they haven't told you how they feel, you do not know how they feel. And there may be a point, because some of them are like a fire hose. You're getting so much information. And you may need to ask for clarification. And sometimes, Michael, it's about just sitting with that. Yeah. Uh, you're this, just this. set with it and see is it, what comes up, percolates.
0: Is, is that what, uh, I believe it's the, the Jewish tradition of sitting Shiva? Yes, yes.
1: And, and you do not, you're not expected to say anything to them. You're expected to show up and often it's around mealtime when you show up, even like the front door may be open so you don't have to ring the doorbell or knock. And if they want to say something to you, then you respond. And uh, one thing I have learned, uh, it's like somebody say something. You know, Somebody say something. This is awkward. Somebody say something. And I've done uh, grief groups for 20 years, not the traditional therapy model. I do storytelling groups. And we meet around an unfinished Amish quilt. And I tell people, we're going to quilt stories 90 minutes each week for six weeks and um, that you know something that somebody in the circle needs to know. And it's been interesting, Michael, um, one person accused me of running a VBS for grief. Because <laughs> we do lots of arts and crafts, because some people, they need a way to put with their experience. For example, one thing we do is get these terracotta flower pots and break them, and then they have to put it back together. Yeah. And we sat around a room gluing these pots back together. But it's unbelievable how people talk. One thing I borrowed from scholars at Auburn uh, they used to give a heart or a circle. And the first night you had to divvy that up into what percentage each emotion felt, where it was anger, disappointment, shock. And I always said, now, It's the emotion you actually feel tonight, not what you're supposed to feel. And they use different color crayons to divvy that heart or a pie, a circle. And then they come back to the group and they explain their heart, the colors of their heart. And then they date it. And the last night, they do it again, go back and look at the heart. Wow, you were pretty angry when we started this process, but you only have like 5% anger now, how has that happened? <laughs> and these are strangers by and large. And yet they build this bond, somebody listen to me, no crosstalk. say, you know what you ought, let me tell you, here's what you need to do. None of that, just simply listen to my story. And some people told things, when they parked in the hospital parking lot, they had no idea what they were really getting going to say, but there was that moment where it was like the intersection. This is my time, and uh, watching people go, keep talking. Yeah, come on, come on, keep talking. And it was incredible. Mm. I told them I wish I could have videotaped them the first night when they came into the room, and then showed them the last night. The countenances sometimes it changed because that became what the Jewish people call called mekom hanakama, which means safe place of comfort. Mm. And I think whatever the loss is or the anticipated loss, because there's anticipatory grief, uh, sometimes that begins the, when the doctor walks in the cubicle and you look at his face and go, this isn't going to be good. Uh, it's that sense of it's safe. This is a safe place for me to say whatever I want to say, and that's what people des. And I think some people, I, I, I'm sorry for my counseling friends, but they're willing to rent your ears for 50 minutes because no one else in their life is listening. Yeah. Or, Michael, I've discovered some people, if you start talking about you're angry at God, oh, oh, now, 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 God has his way. We're not, oh, no, 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 no. And so they can't tell you why they're angry at God. And they need to be able to express that. Um, and I go, well, Job 3,000 years ago, dealt with that same issue. It's, it's not new. Yeah, Giving people that they know. And that could be two people sitting in Starbucks, back in a corner of Starbucks, even with all the noise around them, that has become make-home Hanakama, a safe place. They can grieve or talk, or reminisce, whatever it, it may be. But we all need those safe, safe
0: places. Right. I totally, totally agree. You are with people who have just experienced great loss. That's what you've done for a majority of your professional life, I guess. Is that a, is that a fair statement? That is um, fair, yeah. And, yeah. and so and, – and and you've talked about the stories that you tell when you get together with friends. I mean, I, years ago, I was headed off to play at a golf tournament with uh, several of my friends and my brother. And our, our oldest son, Chad, I think was probably – 10 or 11 at the time. And he said, so y'all are going back down to Henry Horton dad for that golf tournament. I said, yeah, Will Jeffrey be there. Yes. Will Rick be there. Yes. Will Troy be there. Yes. Will Kevin be there. Yes. He said, are y'all going to sit around and tell the same stories that you told last year, you know, and the year before that. And even at a young age, Chad (laughs) had picked up on the fact that when certain people got together, certain stories would be told, you know, and I, I have a great deal of admiration for your ability to to tell a story. I've, Thank you. I've loved listening to you speak. Is there an art to telling a story? Did you did you learn how to tell stories by listening to other people tell stories? What talk I to- did, you know that old adage: "A
1: child should be seen, not heard." <laughs> uh, our my grandparents, both maternal and paternal, lived uh, twenty five miles from us, over in southern Indiana. And they were elderly, and they needed help where it was chopping wood or bringing wood, all those kind of things. And so on Saturdays, Dad would load up the station wagon, and off we kids would go. And uh, during the winter, though, and several of those times, you sat around a pot-bellied stove, and uh, the elders told stories. And you did not interfere. You weren't there. There was nothing you were going to share as a six-year-old. Anyone wanted to hear. And so one uh, smoked a pipe, a corn top pipe, and one smoked a cigar. And I would watch as they tell stories and that, you know, bring the cigar and then (laughs) and you went, what happened then? I'm getting to it. I'm getting to it. And I noticed how they paused. Uh, it happened so often, so many Saturdays over the years, that sometimes I noticed stories got told differently. And in my dad's family, uh, the statement was, who's telling this story, you or me? <laughs> and the answer was, then tell it the way it happened. I'm telling it the way it happened. And sometimes on the way back to Louisville, I would ask my dad, now, Dad." This is what he said this time, but he said something different previously. And uh, sometimes my dad was a bit chagrined, but he was aware that I was listening very closely. But I learned the power of pause to let the story unfold almost like a fishing uh, line going out, just letting it go out and you know see what it attracts. Uh, but it's also about going somewhere with the story, not just telling the story. There's somewhere you're going with it. You you have something in mind. Maya Angelou said, uh, if we listen closely enough, we realize why that happened to me too. Mm. The similarities, the details may be different, but the overall themes. My grandfathers were poor. Uh, One of them left me a pocket watch and the other left me nothing. But, as an adult, I looked back and went, oh, no, no. The inheritance was hearing those stories and listening to those stories. And uh, even though (laughs) I was a little talker as a kid and it was very tough, but you'd hear that popping of the wood and then, boy, get up and put some more wood in the stove there. And um, that's how I learned. That's that's really, I, I think people can be intrigued by facts. But it's the story that appeals to our hearts. Uh, and, and, and looking at Jesus' teaching, uh, it was really stories that brought, Of a certain man had two sons. And, uh, of course, in going to church all the time, as we did, you know, in those days when Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, then you had 10-day revivals, I got to be exposed to a lot of stories but also a lot of scriptures. Yeah. And it was that power of that story. Yes, I'd heard that story before, but he told it just a little bit differently than the previous pastor or evangelist. And saying with that story, what have we here? Uh, I'll tell you a quick story. Um, I uh, went to a presidential library and I'd sat there all afternoon and I had nothing. And so I put my head down, God, I have been here. I drove all these miles, I Got to have something. <laughs> and sometimes it's just good to stand up and walk around. And I was walking around, and uh, one display they had in this presidential library was magazine uh, covers that had president's pictures on them. So I'm going up, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I came to one, and I noticed uh, 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 Kennedy's uh, Maud Shaw talks about kennedy funeral she had never told maude shaw was the children's uh 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 uh, john john and caroline's nanny okay well she started telling these stories and there was a guy and i'm blanking his his name was clint and i can't remember his exact last name it's blanking on me and that does happen with stories and uh he had spent a lot of time with caroline on caroline duty. And so, uh, you know, all the people marched down Constitution Avenue, or Pennsylvania Avenue, whatever it was, towards St. Matthews for the funeral. But Jackie decided the Kennedy children were going to ride in the limousine. And so in the backseat of that limo, you've got Caroline, Mrs. Shaw, the nanny, and then you've got little John John. And Caroline, very sensitive six-year-old child, was so overwhelmed by the laws, she had to look out the window and she recognized that secret service agent. And she lowered the window and stuck her hand out that window. And that secret service agent stepped forward and held Caroline's hand all the way to the church. Mm -hmm. Now under secret service policy, he could have been fired because one hand has to be free in case you draw a gun. Mm -hmm. But he said, in that moment, I realized how much Carolyn Kennedy Caroline Kennedy needed me. And I remember just gasping for breath. So sometimes it's those details that are very important. Some minority, what Caroline was wearing wasn't really important, but that she, in that moment, stuck out her hand and he stepped forward and took her hand. And I was so grateful in that library, I kept holding on, there's got to be a story here. There's got to be a story. And sure enough, there was a wonderful story that I've told numerous times and with Secret Service agents present. Uh, it's been a surprise to me after speaking to meet them and for the, their comments. on That's amazing. <laughs> That's yeah. Amazing. yeah. So, but if so, I had given up earlier, I would have lost the really great story. Right. Yeah. You just keep looking and keep. Looking. So,
0: so do you do you find that whatever the level of relationship, even if it's with a total stranger, if you can, if you can give them space, that pause that you talked about earlier, even in in perhaps like, for me, I like to I like to engage a server at a restaurant if there's time. Yes. If there's if yes. there's a moment, especially if I'm sitting at the counter at Waffle House or something like that. Yes, if, if I can get somebody to just tell me a little bit about, you know, how they how they are or how they got there or what what's going on in your world right now. Yeah, I find, I find that people. And, and I think you alluded to this earlier, they just, they just wish there was somebody there that would listen to them for a minute, right? Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, Michael, I've been very taken by the great old hymn, Lead on, O King Eternal. Mm. And there's a verse that just radiates with me that says, For not with swords loud clamor, or stir of roaring drum, in deeds of love and kindness the heavenly kingdom. Comes. <laughs> and you think about that moment when the disciples were so shocked finding Jesus talking to that uh, fallen woman mm. who he had asked to get water out of the well. And those conversations were so utterly important. And uh, we may not get anything out of the conversation, but the other person got something out of it. But sometimes... We're away from it, and suddenly we're going. Wow! Listen, yeah, I remember what he said now, or what she said, and then we go, "Oh, how how did they say it? No, oh, how exactly did they say it?" And trying to get those words right. Um, I very, very, very critically.
0: I probably well, I no, no, probably to it. I I could spend hours just chatting with you, and maybe. Someday we'll be somewhere on a cruise ship again, like we were a few yes. years ago, and we can do that. But and I remember you singing karaoke, <laughs> and that one woman <laughs> saying to me, "You have uh, sung before." No, that was a lot there. of fun. That was a lot of yes, fun. yes, it was. If it was. if you if you knew you had, I mean, who knows who's going to listen to this? I'm just kind of in the early stages of this particular platform and the podcast and all that, but for. For people who know you, a lot of what you've shared tonight is going to really resonate. For for people who've never met you, what would you what would you want to say to somebody that you know about what really matters to you? What what uh, what do you hope still to perhaps be able to accomplish um, in in the remaining years of your life? What what's burning? What, what's really driving you these days?
1: That's a great question. I want to show you what my brother, my older brother, <laughs> sent me for birthday present. Old lives matter. And I was just like, oh, my. Uh, okay, boy. I, and then I get to know, did you get it? Did you get it? Oh, yes. 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 I, I got it. And I'm using it. You know, our, our culture is so focused on the young, the yeah. new, the latest. And I learned something from my friend, Charlie Shedd, who wrote letters to Karen, letters to Peter. Wonderful guy. He was asked to go speak at some exclusive high school, private high school. And so he went early, and visited all these students and he gets up there and he said, now you're very intelligent. Boy, some of you are just it's just unbelievable how smart you are and what you know. And he said, but. Looking at me, they're wonder, you're wondering why they bring this old man in here to speak to us? Because I have something that you don't have. Well, what's that? I have wisdom hmm. that I have learned over the years. And he said, I want to tell you yes, there's a place for your knowledge and all that, but there's got to be a place for wisdom. And I think that's part of uh, my understanding of my mission. Uh, teaching this, uh, inductive, the the opening uh, prepa- preparation for exams as thenotologist to these young people, some of them are young, and wanting to get so much information across, but also con- giving them confidence you can pass this exam. Yes, it's going to be a challenge. Sure, it's going to be. You wouldn't want want it hanging on your wall if you're right. something, but you can do it, and that there's a phrase i heard and i can't tell you who said it it was a preacher the god who did not abandon jesus will not abandon you and i asked people why is the front windshield so large and your rear view mirror so small because where you're going is more important than where you've been Yeah, every once in a while, you need to look up and get some perspective. (laughs) But I have found, and I've told a lot of clinicians, you need to go to a junkyard and buy a couple rearview mirrors and just place them there, and and your clients will notice them. What is it with that rearview mirror? Oh, I'm glad you asked, because I really believe that. God is always saying, I set before you possibilities, some of which will not be easy, but... Some of which will be
0: worth reaching. Yeah. I love that. Hey, I, again, uh, it, it, time, a, a little bit of time has elapsed here as we've been recording, but it feels like we just got started. Um, yeah. Maybe we'll do we,
1: it again sometime. Maybe we can. Uh, Let me tell you a quick thing, though a personal thing. Yeah. I, I cannot tell you how important it was that uh, we do this tonight. Uh, let me just tell you a story I, I got ripped to shreds yesterday by a member of a presidential family uh, I have never been addressed like that mm. uh, the rudeness and you know I've been with quite a few that have been very kind to me but it he challenged my integrity mm. uh, my writing all this stuff and um You know, I wanted, Michael, Lord knows I wanted to lay hands on the person (laughs) because they're not under Secret Service protection or anything now and really just clean their plow. But it was like, no, leave this alone. You, You don't have to respond to this or you don't have to respond to it now. And so after that dressing down, and if they hadn't challenged my professional integrity, uh it wouldn't that wouldn't have been an issue just say yeah. okay we're, we're two people that are done. yeah and, um so and you asking me to do this and telling me how much you wanted to do this tonight and how much you've appreciated my storytelling this was the very right <laughs> good time. I needed this I good. really did and I hope you'll put that card I sent you somewhere because as soon as I saw that card I went well, that's michael he's getting ready to walk out on the high rope and yet it isn't the other end isn't tied to anything yeah and, you know a lot of people can walk a tightrope if it's tied
0: to, <laughs> to, to, to another side yeah
1: but when you're I, holding part of it in your hand
0: yeah i i it the card meant so much the 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 message of the card and the and the visual and uh maybe we can even do a little b-roll and show people the card we're that you're talking about but it's yeah but you have never forgotten the value of a handwritten note either uh, and i, and I yeah. don't want to lift that out you know it's it's interesting that you you know talk about listening to elders i one of the reasons i've called this show michael in the middle is that i i feel like i'm in between um you know my 100 year old mother-in-law is in there in our bedroom, we had to move upstairs when we had to move Sarah's parents into our house a little over a year ago, and and B's still with us. And then I, I have, you know, my eighty five year old father who I interviewed a couple of weeks ago, and and people seem to have, have enjoyed that. I think elderly people have been made to feel as if their wisdom was no longer even needed in today's yes. world, and. That's a, That's a tragedy, both for the elderly to feel like they're obsolete and it's a tragedy for the young to believe that there's nothing to be gained from talking to someone you know who's lived a long time. Yes and so yes. so this being in the middle, there's there's all kinds of layers to what that middle's about. But I feel like I'm kind of at 62 years of age I'm and still working on a college campus, I, I, I've stayed younger because of it, I think. But, man, I uh, I think about where I was 20 years ago, and that's a world away from now feeling like, man, 20 years from now doesn't seem so far away, you know?
1: Yes. <laughs> uh,
0: so it's very sobering. It's been great to be with you. Great.
1: I've enjoyed it,
0: Michael. Thank God's you. God's blessings. God's peace. Thank you for your uh, encouragement as well along the way. And uh, we will try to do this again sometime. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Have a good Labor Day weekend. Okay, I'm planning on it. it Labor Day really? is our 40, 41st wedding anniversary, by the way. So
1: oh, well, it better be a good
0: weekend. We're, then. We we are we are going to at least go out to eat, and then we may take a little <laughs> trip somewhere the rest of the week. But uh, thanks, yeah. Dr. Harold Ivan. All right, take care. Bye bye. See you again.